I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Podcast public service announcement. You're about to hear an episode in the middle of a multi-part show arc. If you haven't heard the previous episodes, we suggest you skip back to part one of this topic in the feed and listen in order. All right, Paranoid Strain Orchestra, hit it. King Philip IV of France, the most powerful sovereign in Europe at the time. Now, one king or another turning against the Templars shouldn't have been a big deal. Remember that they were set up as a stateless order, answering only to their grandmaster and the pope. But the reality was more complicated. Many Templars were originally from France, and the order had a strong base there. As their banking activities expanded, the French Templars began serving, by the 13th century, as a sort of de facto treasury for the nation. This didn't sit well with Philip, who seems to have really bought into that ancient concept of the divine right of kings. In fact, he so believed in the righteousness of his own quest for power that he spent much of his reign attempting to bend the papacy, which was generally seen as the most powerful position in the Christian world at the time, to his wishes, thereby becoming de facto head of both church and state. As part of this effort, he had actually had a pope arrested and roughed up. Then, when he died, he had the next pope poisoned, and subsequently he squeezed the College of Cardinals into electing a French pope. The new guy, Clement V, knew what side his bread was buttered on, and acquiescing to Philip's wish, then refused to relocate from the French city of Avignon to Rome, inaugurating a nearly 70-year period when the papacy was in France. The so-called Avignon papacy. That characters in Umberto Eco's novel Foucault's Pendulum, perhaps the greatest conspiracy theory story ever written, and a book we'll eventually discuss at length, lay out Philip's objections to the Templars with a bit more sympathy to the crown, if you'd like an alternative viewpoint. They were a sovereign order beyond any royal control. The Grandmaster ranked as a prince of the blood. He commanded an army, administered vast landholdings, was elected like the emperor, and had absolute authority. The French treasury was located in the temple in Paris, outside the king's control. The Templars were the trustees, proxies, and administrators of an account that was the king's only in name. They paid funds in and out and manipulated the interest. They acted like a great private bank, but enjoyed all the privileges and exemptions of a state institution. The king's treasurer was a Templar. How could a ruler rule under such conditions? Meanwhile, the Templars, after the fall of Acre, had retreated to the island of Cyprus, where they elected the man who turned out to be their final grandmaster, Jacques de Molay, in 1292. De Molay soon headed back to Europe, determined to rebuild the military arm of the Templars after their recent defeats. His plan was to visit all of the kings, assuming that they would be filled with fervor to pay for a reconquering of the lost Holy Land holdings for the glory of God. This was a reasonable assumption, considering that's exactly what had happened with the Third Crusade seven decades earlier. Unfortunately, though, he found little enthusiasm for mounting new international armies for foreign adventures, and by the turn of the century, the Pope was toying with a policy that would combine the Templars and the Hospitallers, bringing them under closer papal control. So de Molay's grand crusading ambitions got bogged down in preserving his order's independence. 
Meanwhile, Philip IV was desperate for money, mostly to pay for the frivolous and expensive wars his father and he had waged. His first ploy for cash was that classic Christian kingdom standby, expelling France's Jewish population and stealing all of their money, in 1306. But the returns from this endeavor didn't meet his needs, so he set his lawyers to the task of developing a plausible reason to arrest the very wealthy Templars. By October of 1307, that job was complete, and the Templars were rounded up en masse on Friday the 13th of that month. This is one of the many reasons some have offered for the widespread notion that Friday the 13th is unlucky. Jones details the accusations against the Templars. The charges against them were utterly heinous and scandalous almost beyond description. The brothers of the Order of the Knights of the Temple, wolves in sheep's clothing, in the habit of a religious order vilely insulting our religious faith, are again crucifying our Lord Jesus Christ, read the royal letters. So the roundups began. There was little resistance, and only a handful of brothers tried to flee. Instead, the Templars, long renowned for their valour on the battlefield, trooped out blinking into the autumn dawn to be led away meekly to their fate. While Hag establishes why this action being undertaken by secular authorities was so unusual, offering interesting insights into the accusations levelled against the Templars by Philip's lawyers. The charge against the Templars was heresy. When being inducted into the order, initiates were required to deny Christ, spit on the cross, and place obscene kisses about the body of their receptor. They were also obliged to indulge in sexual relations with other members of the order if requested. And they wore a small belt which had been consecrated by touching a strange idol which looked like a human head with a long beard, called Baphomet, possibly an old French distortion of Mohammed. The arrest and charging of the Templars was unusual in that though authorised by the Papal Inquisitor in France, the action was effected not by the Church, but by the King. The normal procedure in heresy cases at this time was for the Church to make the arrests and try the accused heretics under Church law, only releasing them to the secular authorities for punishment if this was the verdict of the court. Yet here was a military order which for nearly two hundred years had owed its loyalty directly and solely to the papacy, from which it had enjoyed complete protection, and suddenly its brothers were arraigned by secular power. This alone must have come as a shock to the arrested Templars. That Philip was able to arrest and charge the Templars was owed to a loophole in the law going back to the time of the Cathars and their trials nearly eighty years before. So serious was the spread of the Cathar heresy that in 1230 Pope Honorius III had bestowed extraordinary powers on the Inquisitor in France, extending his reach even to the exempt orders, the Templars, the Hospitallers, and St. Bernard's Cistercians, whenever there was a suspicion of heresy. After the Cathar heresy was eradicated, this grant of powers was forgotten by the papacy, but it was never revoked. This meant that the Templars, though otherwise untouchable, were vulnerable to the charge of heresy, a discovery made by Philip IV's assiduous lawyers, who now used it to devastating effect. We'll be covering the Cathars immediately after we finish with the Templars, but for now the thrust is that the Pope gave the French king extraordinary powers and then neglected to revoke them once the supposed Cathar threat had been dealt with. Think of it as a 13th century version of the Patriot Act extensions, Conquerors Keeps Passing. Because this loophole was only available for the crime of heresy, a case for heresy is what Philip's lawyers delivered. The accusations against the Templars appear on some level to have kinda sort of been true, but not in a way that would make them guilty of anything other than being a slightly odd secret society. 
you know, the kind of stuff a bunch of dudes might get up to over a few hundred years in a foreign land without any women around. Yeah, and surprisingly, it's all less gay than you might have expected. It's more just weird stuff. We'll explain a little later, but the other thing that makes it tough to piece together the truth or falsity of the accusations against the Templars is that the vast majority of the testimony taken by Philip's lawyers was the result of extensive torture of the interviewees. Which, of course, 21st century U.S. history teaches us can be used to deliver testimony that backs up whatever accusations the torturer wants to hear, regardless of their validity. This horrific shortcut by Philip's forces is even more egregious when you consider that most of the French Templars who were rounded up and tortured were elderly, unarmed people. They weren't warriors, but for the most part functionaries who cared for the grounds, households, and stables that were owned by the order. Then, there was a further layer of complication. Though many have seen him as a pawn of Philip, what with the Avignon papacy and all, Clement V was conscious enough of the need to maintain the power of his office that he didn't take kindly to Philip's legalistic encroachment on what would normally have been purely the arena of the ecclesiastical, that is, churchy, authorities, regardless of the fig leaf offered by the Cathar precedent. There ensued a great deal of wrangling between Clement and Philip over the Templars and the relationship of church and state, the majority of which were skipping over. But it is important to note that the interests of the king and pope were at odds throughout this period. Clement wanted to reform the knights and likely combine them with the Hospitallers, but keep the orders largely intact. Philip, both to expand his authority and to get some much-needed funds, wanted to completely liquidate the Templars, both on paper and physically. This is not a modern reinterpretation of Philip's motives, either. A decade after his death, he appeared as an avatar of unchecked lust for money and power in one of the most famous works in the history of literature. His wars against England and in Flanders had cost him a great deal of money and he had inherited a huge debt from his father's wars. The Templars were a tempting target, for unlike the Hospitallers, whose wealth was entirely in land, the Templars, from their banking activities, also had liquid wealth, which the king could quickly and easily grab. By accusing them of heresy, Philip could turn the Templars into reprehensible religious outsiders like the Jews, against whom persecution was readily rationalised. Many foreign observers, especially those in northern Italy, where there was a more complete understanding of the power of money than anywhere else in 14th century Europe, were convinced that getting his hands on the Templars' cash and precious metals was the primary motive for Philip's attack. Dante famously attacked the king's actions in Purgatorio, the second book of Divine Comedy, written in the immediate aftermath of the Templars' arrest. I see the second pilot's cruel mood grow so insatiate that without decree his greedy sails upon the temple intrude. Further complicating the picture was the fact that many knights, including de Molay himself and his closest lieutenants, would confess to every crime that Philip's lawyers dredged up, but then later, when in the presence of the Pope, and with the threat of torture belayed, would amend or retract what they had previously said. This, in fact, was the most dangerous part of the whole saga for the knights. Under the rules that governed these trials, most heretics who confessed their sins and did penance were welcomed back into the loving arms of the Mother Church. But those who later abjured their confessions left themselves open to being seen as unrepentant sinners, and therefore worthy of the death penalty. Eventually, after literally years of jockeying over power and responsibility between the king and the pope, Philip took the unrepentant Jacques de Molay, who had perhaps decided that an honest death with a clear conscience was preferable to what would probably have been a slow death as a prisoner in the pits of Philip's jails, and along with one of his closest associates in the Templars' leadership, he was burned at the stake in Paris on March 8, 1314. 
Because the Templars had been officially disbanded by the Pope during one of the many legalistic back-and-forths he waged with Philip, the whole order was eventually shut down across all of Christendom, and they faded into legend. Or at least, say the conspiracists, that's what you're supposed to think. You'll have noted that we kind of blitz through the arrest, accusation, torture, papal interrogation, recantation, and final destruction of the Templars for the sake of providing a capsule history of the order. But of course, it's precisely those parts of the story that are most salient to the various conspiracy theories that have accrued to the Templars since their demise. So now that you know the way things turned out, we need to look more closely at what, exactly, the knights were accused of, what we can tell about those accusations' connection to the Templars' actual behavior, and how the whole sad story eventually led to their legendary, mythical, and almost totally fabricated post-mortem reputation. First, let's look a bit more closely at the accusations that Philip's lawyers ginned up. As we noted earlier, since at least the 13th century, there were those who believed the Templars' fierce, self-sacrificing, and abstemious reputation was undeserved at best, and fabricated to hide monstrous secret behavior at worst. And we acknowledge that these accusations might have a hidden grain of truth, as Dr. Spence will tell you, the ideas behind any narrative that tries to make sense of the Templars' arrest, trial, and eventual formal dissolution will inevitably rest on a significant amount of conjecture. But that doesn't mean there's no truth to the accusations. There's always this argument to be made, is that the Templars were, you know, they were victims of a conspiracy centered around the King of France, but uh, there's also the idea that they were on one level guilty of everything he was accusing them of. The Templars are accused of many things that you cannot substantiate and which may be nothing more than scurrilous lies that were told about them, or they may contain some part of the truth. To some degree, it comes down as to how clever they were, to what degree they had prepared for this eventuality. We want to try as best we can to figure out whether or not the Templars were actually guilty of the sorts of things that the average, normal Christian European would have thought of as heretical crimes at the time. Remember. That means we're going to be discussing things that these days would maybe qualify as mildly eccentric behavior. But the rules in 14th century France were, as you might imagine, somewhat less go-along, get-along than we 21st century developed country peeps are used to. For example, the right to commit heresy willy-nilly is kind of built into the idea of free speech, so it can be tough to get into a mindset that would advocate for heretics to get the death penalty. But trust us. Getting accused of heresy, especially when you were part of a religious order, was bad news in the 1300s. So a lot of what Philip's lawyers argued in their heresy case was based on rumors surrounding the Templars' mode of living in their remote castles, and especially their initiation rites. Again, Dr. Spence earlier made it clear that some sort of initiation is an unavoidable part of the whole being-in-a-secret-society experience. But as we will find in later examples, especially the Freemasons. Keeping initiation ceremonies secret can lead to gross exaggerations by outsiders who only hear vague rumors about what's actually going on. 
And the thing is, we still don't have any really solid, untorture-derived descriptions of the secret initiation ceremony of the Templars. Because, duh, secret. The key Templar rites that were put forward as beyond the pale were... One. Kissing. Two. Repudiating the cross and or abjuring Christianity. Three. Allegedly worshipping an idol, usually called Baphomet. So, one at a time. Now, this whole kissing thing, I think we as modern people are pretty cool with it, so long as the folks involved are all consenting to the kissing. The consent part being an aspect of the kissing process that has, confusingly, come as a surprise to a number of powerful people over recent years. We don't want to brag or nothing, but we here at The Strain have consensually kissed a number of people over the years, including tiny Jesuit, paternal, cheek and forehead based, chaste kissing, lady Jesuit, Decidedly non-paternal, not-at-all-chaste kissing. And Paranoid Strain Orchestra leader Daniel Arizona. Drunken, college-era, on-a-dare kissing, but still five stars, would very much recommend. Anyway, aside from the degree to which the recipient is interested in said kissing, this idea isn't all that controversial today. But of course, in this case, we're dealing with the super-homophobic mores of a culture that prevailed 700 years ago, when surely men kissing other men was considered totally verboten. Right, author Dan Jones? Exchanging kisses was an accepted part of feudal relationships and a common way of expressing Christian peace. If it shocked the king or his ministers, they made no mention of it in their first meeting with James. Neither did they take the master to task on any other issues of sexualized contact between brothers in the order, although the rules certainly mentioned them. Oh, for real? So, during this period, dudes kissing was an important part of the exchange of respect within an otherwise aggressively heteronormative society. Well then, what was a big fucking deal about two hot-blooded Templars doing some epiglottal jousting? That's where the lawyering comes in. Per Jones, Philip's attorneys really earned their keep by transforming this apparently anodyne symbol of acceptance and respect into something that at the time would have been considered extremely transgressive, though by modern lights would be too tame for Game of Thrones. The inspiration for the charges was the kiss of peace given to each new brother, but fed through the royal propaganda machine directed by William of Nogare, this had become a ceremony of orgiastic depravity calculated to shock all faithful Christians. According to very reliable people, brothers were forced on entering the order to remove their clothes and stand naked before their receiver, who celebrated their entry to the order by kissing them first on the lower part of the dorsal spine, secondly on the navel, and finally on the mouth, in accordance with the profane rite of their order, but to the disgrace of the dignity of the human race. Please note, when they say lower part of the dorsal spine, they're implying that the Templars, at best, were literally kissing each other's butts, and that the worst were... Chris Walk, what's the term here? Yeah, well, having your salad toss means having your asshole eaten out. With jelly or sir? I prefer sir. Right, all of which, according to the royal lawyers, was supposed to lead to a much more HBO-appropriate climax. Having thus entered the temple, brothers were obliged by their vows to have sex with one another, and this is why the wrath of God has fallen on these sons of infidelity. Sodomy, heresy, attacks on the image of Jesus Christ, and a dash of black magic Familiar charges to anyone who had fallen foul of Philip IV of France to date. 
Okay, so the Templars were basically accused of being gay, which to a modern ear seems totally believable given that we're dealing with a bunch of dudes in a period where homosexuality was not so much a normal sexual preference, but more of an invitation to gruesome state and church-sanctioned execution. And these dudes were given the opportunity to go thousands of miles from their homelands to live in a hostile territory in the company only of other men, far removed from normal social strictures. One would anticipate this state of affairs would attract some confirmed bachelors. Covetousness, I can never say that, lust, gluttony, envy, and sloth are collectively known as what? Oh, the Bill of Rights. <laughs> yeah, you would think. But in point of fact, the Templars apparently took a hardline stance against this sort of thing. So while it seems obvious that the Knights, like any group of people, probably had some gay members who probably got up to some down-low activities, the accusations of wild, orgiastic sodomy appear to have been trumped up. Next on the docket? Oh, just a little thing called renouncing Christ? Yeah, this one's tricky. Based on the testimony of a number of knights, some derived from torture, some apparently not. Part of the secret initiation ceremony involved spitting on the cross and swearing that the initiate rejected Jesus, the Trinity, the Virgin Mary, and all the other stuff that Orthodox Christians believed at the time. That seems like a weird requirement for joining. What was the formal Templar title again? Poor fellow soldiers of Christ and the Temple of Jerusalem. Yeah, admittedly, this is a tough one to parse, and maybe it was completely made up by Philip's unbelievably effective lawyers, but the sheer number and variety of similar testimonies arising from the trials of the Templars indicates that there was actually some there there. But what was that there, exactly? Those knights who were able to clarify their previous testimony in the presence of Pope Clement offered a strange, but to our ears, pretty plausible explanation for this seeming blasphemy. Namely, they were practicing for the reasonable possibility that they would be captured in battle and forced to renounce their faith. Remember, the Crusades were, above anything else, a war of opposing religious identities. And given that the whole point was meeting one's theological opponents on the field of battle, there was a decent chance that the Templars, who were naturally expected to be at the forefront of any Christian army arrayed against the Muslims, might end up captured by those forces. And in the event of a capture, it was fairly likely that they would be given a choice between renouncing Christ or facing the sword. The Geneva Conventions wouldn't be ratified for another 700 years or so, and treatment of captured enemy soldiers was kind of left to the whims of the victorious commander. So, in these Templars' version, spitting on the cross and abjuring their faith was a means of toughening themselves up should they have to pretend to do those things in the future, in the hope of convincing their captors of their sincerity for long enough to escape and live to fight for the one true church another day. As Spence puts it in his course notes, By convincingly, but insincerely, insulting Christ, they saved themselves but committed no sin. Sure, this sounds weird to our ears. Why would you practice to convincingly forsake the religion that was the entire reason you became a knight in the first place? But there's another reason to think that the Templars may have come to this idea through their long presence in the Holy Land. That is, they spent significant time around the legendary sect of the Assassins. But don't believe us, just ask Professor Spence. Other factors that, that influence, I think, the fascination with the Templars is their real connection with the Temple Mount in Jerusalem and with the nominally Muslim order of the Assassins. They basically lived on opposite hilltops from each other in the same neighborhood for the better part of 200 years. There's recorded interaction. The Templars at one point were trying to get the Shiite Assassins to, you know, kiss the cross. Supposedly, they might have done it, that others oppose that. Some people read a lot in that, you know, red and white were both their colors. 
Idris Shah, who's an Islamic scholar of some degree and, and also an earlier writer in secret societies, brought up what I thought was an unprovable but intriguing idea that the assassins and the Templars were manifestations of the same order in two different environments. I don't think I buy that wholly, but I'm, I'm not sure it's one, there isn't something to that. We covered the assassins and their leader, the Old Man of the Mountain, in depth in our Assassinations non-JFK edition a few years ago. But to flesh out the Templar story, we need to acknowledge that part of the reason that the Templars came under suspicion by certain observers in Christian Europe was because they had spent so much time associating with not just standard-issue Muslims of the Saladin-Sunni variety, but also weird, esoteric versions of that faith. For example, the Sufis, and especially the Ismailis, which is what the assassins were called at the time. The Ismailis were in close contact with the Templars for decades, as they had been forced through military defeats to pay annual tributes to the order. Some scholars suspect that this close contact allowed the Templars to absorb some esoteric religious notions from the Ismailis, which the knights then applied to their particular brand of Christianity. Author James Wasserman goes further in The Templars and the Assassins, The Militia of Heaven, noting that the Templars and other Crusaders would also have encountered mystics, fakirs, Zoroastrians, Gnostics, Sufis, and Buddhists, which must have presented an almost overwhelming variety of religious experience to Europeans raged in a largely homogeneous religious milieu. Perhaps too confidently, Wasserman asserts that the more intelligent and spiritual knights would inevitably find Catholic dogma wanting in the face of these sophisticated Eastern religious concepts, leading to uncomfortable questions and eventually an undermining of the Templars' orthodoxy. But let's bring our focus back to the assassins. In Islam, there's a well-established doctrine called taqiyah, which explicitly allows the faithful to lie about their beliefs in order to save themselves in the face of persecution by non-believers. The Ismailis definitely adhered to this practice, and the idea that the knights could have picked it up from their enemies is pretty plausible. As we will see later, this connection with the more esoteric beliefs of the assassins, along with those of the Druze, Sufis, and other mystically inclined sects of the region, would feed strongly into conspiracist narratives of the Templars and their hidden knowledge and aims. Once again, we quote Umberto Eco's novel Foucault's Pendulum, in which a group of scholars reflect on the relationship, both real and imagined, of the Templars and the assassins. They were a little like the 19th century adventurers who went native and caught the Mel d'Afrique. The Templars, lacking the usual monastic education, were slow to grasp the fine points of theology. Think of them as Lawrences of Arabia, who after a while start dressing like sheiks. So the blasphemy against the cross may have been a reasonable explanation, at least for a group exposed to new ideas and operating in a hostile environment. But what about that weird idol worship accusation? Certainly, it's the thing within the Templar testimony that is hardest to pin down. On the one hand, Dr. Spence says, there was a wide variety in terms of what exactly this Baphomet thing was that the knights were supposed to be illicitly worshipping, from his course notes. The supposed idol, called Baphomet, was described as a human head, but occasionally as a cat. Some said it was a bearded man, some said a woman, and others said it had two faces or three. The idol supposedly had the power to grant protection, make land fertile, make trees grow, and find and guard riches. And, as Spence goes on to note, some conspiracists argue that it was this powerful idol, and not the Templar gold, that Philip was actually after. Regardless, Jones relates the testimony of one Templar who claimed to have experienced this idol worship, along with a reasonable explanation for what it actually might have been. Hugh described a head that had four feet, two under the face and two behind, that existed in Montpellier, which he had worshipped with his lips and not his heart, 
and then only in pretense. This idol sounded rather like a reliquary, one of those bejeweled caskets, often given human forms, in which scraps of saints' remains were kept for the purpose of perfectly orthodox Catholic adoration. Exactly. Remember, it's not like all the knights and their attendants in the order were expert theologians, or even well-educated people, but most would have seen displays and veneration of the bodily remains of the saints of the faith, as well as the apostles of Jesus and other biblical figures, which were frequently placed into reliquaries, which in turn were often bejeweled and encrusted with gold, and then held up as objects of quasi-worship. The fact that probably few or none of these supposed remains actually belonged to the bodies of those whom the church claimed they did was not super important at this time, given that smarty pants scientific forensic techniques wouldn't arrive for hundreds of years. One finger bone was pretty much as good as another. Right. So these knights, trying to recall events from years ago in foreign lands where they beheld and venerated strange objects, which might have been demonic idols or could have been totally legit Orthodox Christian saint reliquaries, ended up providing a very confusing and contradictory series of accounts that Philip and co. skewed into pagan idol worship. And about that name, Baphomet is, these days, a real thing. Well, not a real real thing, but definitely a fake thing that some modern self-avowed Satanists have adopted as their own real weird thing. You've probably seen pictures of this dude. It is a goat-headed god that happened to star in one of Jesuit's all-time favorite self-owns by a group of self-important assholes. She's right. Digression time. Okay, way back in 2013, a group of Christian fundamentalists and their enablers in the Oklahoma legislature wanted to erect a Ten Commandments monument on the state capitol grounds. They were told by the courts that they could only do so if the money used to pay for that monument was donated by private citizens and groups. Not a big fundraising problem for a Christian monument in Oklahoma, obviously. But there was a second caveat, that the area in which the Erzatz Decalogue was to be erected had to be open to any faith whose adherents were also able to raise the funds to build a monument of their own. I hope you can see where this is going. Who would build a statue to Satan? Well, it turns out a group of atheists wants to do exactly that. The statue would be built in Oklahoma City, but there are some people here in Milwaukee who are raising money and awareness for the cause. I spoke with one of them tonight. Lucifer, the Prince of Darkness, is an image that many Satanists revere. The Satanic Temple, based in New York, now wants to build a seven-foot monument of Satan outside the state capitol building in Oklahoma City. We have the uh, throne where children can sit on mm -hmm. and get their picture taken with it. Brian Warner, who claims to be a Satanic high priest living in Milwaukee, says the statue would be built next to an existing monument of the Ten Commandments. The right-wing religious majority have think that they built. have the right to They say it's only fair because of what Oklahoma lawmakers did in 2009. That's when lawmakers passed a bill allowing the Ten Commandments to be put on display on the grounds of the state capitol. The satanic group says that opened the door for them to display their monument as well because they're also considered a religion. Constitutional experts say if lawmakers allow one religious group to display a symbol of their faith on public property, denying another group's request to do the same could lead to a court battle. Yeah, the Satanists demanded the right to put up a nine-foot statue of Baphomet, the goat god, teaching eager children about rationality. It turns out that most self-described Satanists are just atheists who like pulling pranks on religious zealots who don't understand the separation of church and state. The whole thing eventually ended with the fundies getting shot down by the state Supreme Court since they didn't want to share with the other religions. Honestly, I don't see what this had to do with the trial of the Templars. Oh, it has fuck all to do with that. I just can't resist a good digression. Especially where, how did you put it? 
a group of self-important assholes pull a huge self-own. Yeah, I really dig that. Okay, back to the Templar Baphomet discussion. Anyway, the goat-headed Baphomet was a 19th century design. So whatever the Templars thought they might have kind of sort of been venerating back in the 1200s, it definitely wasn't the Satanist goat dude. Dr. Spence has more. The Baphomet thing, I mean, one, you can't even figure out what the word actually is. You know, the simplest explanation is that, well, I don't know, they couldn't pronounce Muhammad, so it came out Baphomet. That's simply based on the idea that to modern ears, Muhammad and Baphomet kind of look alike. Therefore, because they kind of look alike, that must have been what it is. But nobody, nobody to me has ever given in anything more than that. You know, it's, it's a cat, it's a woman, it's a, it's a two-headed, I mean, there's, there's nothing that looks like what is called Baphomet today. You know, that the thing that modern-day Satanists worship is Baphomet. The, the goat-headed guy, you know, the hermaphrodite with the legs crossed. Okay, you know, the thing that everything today, if you go in and Google Baphomet, that's what will come up. That image doesn't even exist until the early 19th century. That image is a creation of Eliphas Levy in the early 19th century, and there's nothing that the Templars describe that could in any way be interpreted as that thing. This is where you can get the argument is that what was happening is that they were being pressured to come up with something, so they would just invent a story. Uh, it was a cat. It was a two-headed cat. That was it. The possibility that can't be wholly discounted. If they prepared themselves in advance for what they might have to do to deceive their Muslim captors, could they also have taken the initiative to prepare themselves for what would happen if they should fall afoul of Christian interrogators? And thus, the idea was to you know, either create something like Baphomet that meant nothing or to create something that gave, and then give different explanations for it, to, to give knowingly false testimony in order to cover up what you're up to. I don't know. There were other charges against the Templars in addition to the ones we went over here, and the whole thing dragged on, as we noted earlier, for literally years. The political fight is pretty interesting. Michael Hagg's book does a great job explaining how the historical view of the struggle between king and pope changed dramatically since 2001 after the discovery of new information in the Vatican archives. These new documents clarified how the pope viewed the Templars' supposed heresies and how he was trying to deal with them. In spite of the confusion arising from the contradictory initial reports, once the Pope and his inquisitors were able to question the Templars out from under the watchful and torturing influence of Philip, some knights, including especially leader Jacques de Molay, immediately recanted, blaming their testimony entirely on torture. On about 27th December 1307, the Cardinals met James of Molay and other leading Templars, who denied everything to which they had formerly confessed. According to one source... The Grand Master said that he had confessed only under heavy torture, and he showed the wounds on his body, though it is not clear if this source can be trusted. Nevertheless, retracting the confessions was a risky move, because under the rules of the Inquisition, relapsed heretics were handed over to the secular authorities to be burnt. That the Grand Master and others took that risk shows that they were confident that a great injustice was about to be overturned. Certainly, James and Molly's attraction marked a turning point in the trial. Hawk offers more details on the Pope's examination of the Knights. The Templars were not heretics, Clement had decided. An account of the examination was kept in the form of marginal notes made at the time. Damaged and mislaid in the Vatican archives, these notes have only recently been discovered, deciphered and published. Together with the Chinon parchment, they show how the Pope came to understand the true nature of the Templars' strange practices. The Templars attended Mass, they went to Holy Communion and Confession, 
and they complied with their liturgical duties. But they also confessed to the Pope that at their entrance ceremony they denied Christ and spat on the cross, though they insisted that they had never consented to this in their souls, and as soon as possible had confessed to a priest and asked for absolution. The Pope found these induction rituals too confused to be taken seriously. At one moment the novice spat on the cross, but then kissed it in adoration. And the novice denied the divinity of Christ, saying, You who are God, I deny, which was no denial at all. If the Templars were heretics, they were the most inconsistent and unconvincing adherents any heresy could have. The Templars had fallen into peculiar ways and needed reform, but that, decided the Pope, was all. It turns out that not only did the Pope find the Knights were innocent of heresy, but he had already heard about the weirder practices of the Order from Jacques de Molay himself before the arrests. In fact, Clement had already heard something of these bizarre practices from James de Molay himself, when the two met at Poitiers in May 1307, five months before the arrests. In the Pope's words, the Grand Master had told him of, quote, many strange and unheard of things, which had caused Clement, quote, great sorrow, anxiety, and upset of heart. The Grand Master feared that these initiation ceremonies, which had been going on for a century or more, were getting out of hand, and the Pope agreed to instigate an inquiry to root out these practices before they erupted into scandal. The Order's leader had sought the Pope's help in trying to reform these odd initiation rituals, which predated de Molay's tenure by a century or more. But while we now know that the Pope had absolved the Knights of the charge of heresy, that fact was inadvertently forgotten for more than 700 years. Hogg explains. In the summer of 1308, the Pope absolved James of Molay and the other Templar leaders held prisoner at Chinon. Seemingly, no proper report of this hearing had survived. Until recently, it was doubted that any such event had taken place. That is, until the discovery of the Chinon parchment in the Vatican archives in 2001, and its publication by the Vatican in 2007. This showed unequivocally that despite the chief Templars being held prisoner by the king, a hearing had somehow been arranged within the royal castle at Chinon. This so-called Chinon parchment, in Hogg's view, puts to bed the question of the Pope's complicity in the order's dissolution. So it turns out the Pope, and therefore the Church, was not actually trying to destroy the order as Philip was. The papacy was beholden to Philip, certainly, but it seems that Clement was doing his best to shield the knights from the king's aims. However, it was not to be. All of this maneuvering transpired in the first months after the Templars' arrest. Jacques de Molay and three of the other Templar leaders were left in prison for another six years, until finally Philip, ignoring or perhaps obscuring the previous absolution issued by the Pope, handed down what amounted to life sentences for all four. Two of them, de Molay and Geoffrey de Charnay, had had all they could stance, I can't stand no more, and vehemently refuted the charges. Because confession meant that you wouldn't be killed, but recantation was essentially an unavoidable death sentence in the ecclesiastical and legal logic of the time when it came to heresy, inevitably they were put to death on the 18th of March, 1314, burned at the stake.
This is your beginner's call. All creatives to the Playhouse. I repeat, welcome to the Playhouse. Hey there, I'm Brooke Edwards. And I'm Chelsea August. And we are your hosts for The Playhouse, our new arts and entertainment podcast that opens the costume box and unravels all of the goodies in the industry. From the makers who brought you Theatre House, your digital platform for all reviews, news and information, comes our next venture, which brings you right behind the scenes and connects you with creatives worldwide. We are bringing the arts sector together to chat about the industry with all the issues that are important to you and all the tips and tricks from professionals to take you to the next level. We hope you come along for the ride, step into the house and enjoy this great new show by Theatre House and That's Not Canon Productions. Don't forget to head on over to theatrehouse.com and give us a follow on Instagram at either PlayhousePod or Theatre House. That's House, H-A-U-S. We'll see you at the Playhouse. And see. 